Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, it's the man behind Brothers Keeper, the Paradise Lost series, Metallic is Some Kind of Monster, the Blair Witch sequel, Book of Shadows, Whitey, Extremely Wicked and Shockingly Evil and Vile, Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes, and Murder of the Mormons. And she is a writer behind the book, Some Girls, My Life in a Harem, and her upcoming book on the subject that we're going to talk about tonight. It's Confronting a Serial Killer. It's Joe Berlinger. And it's Jillian Lauren. This is a busy year for you. Do you find it kind of just happened this way because you've had the pandemic to finish a lot of stuff? Or can we expect an even busier slate coming up from you with the work that you've done during this pandemic? Um, it is true. I've been extremely blessed and lucky uh, because I I was kept busy during the pandemic. Um, you know, one of the lucky things is that a lot of my several projects were shot and in the can just when the lockdown happened. So we just figured out how to get everyone to remote work, you know, working situations. And we did editing on multiple projects throughout the past year. So, you know, I worked on a show called crime scene that debuted on Netflix, uh, murder among the Mormons and this show, you know, I worked on all last year and now we're seeing kind of the, the fruits of those efforts. So I feel very blessed that I was actually the key. I was, you know, I kept busy during this terrible time for so many people. Um, it, you know, it is, I will say, um, having been doing this now for literally 31 years, I figured by now that they, you know, they would be putting me out to pasture. So it's interesting to me that I'm in a very busy period of my career. You know, obviously the, um, the ever-increasing popularity of the nonfiction form, you know, has a lot to do with that. When I first started making films in with Brothers Keeper in, you know, 1990, if you, if you weren't selling your documentary to HBO or PBS, you weren't selling your documentary because there was only two, two, two gigs in town for television. Um, and there was no, really no such thing as documentary series yet the way we know it now. And today we're in this golden age, both of the documentary where it's truly become a mainstream form of entertainment. Um, and the docu-series is experiencing quite a, a golden age. So um, I appreciate being so busy. And yes, um, you will see new seasons of Crime Scene and other assorted goodies uh, over, the next <laughs> over the next 12 months. So... Uh, I feel lucky. I feel lucky to be busy. I personally think that your best is yet to come, but I hope that we get to touch on that at the end of this. Jillian, <laughs> though, when did you come to the realization that Joe was going to be the best person to tell this story? Joe found me. <laughs> um, but I uh, was um, thrilled, you know, as who? <laughs> Who wants to know? Um, you know, uh, of course, I was such a huge fan of Joe's, and he really was um, a great inspiration to me in sort of how I approach my work creatively as as a writer. Um, you know, with with a social justice message, not message, but 
impulse or engine always there. Um, and so uh, he had read my article in New York Magazine and um, we had lunch. We like to joke we met in Paris, um, but we had lunch at a restaurant called The Taste of Paris. And, um, you know, we were just kindred spirits hit it off immediately. And, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. And I just, I knew he was the right person to make it. I really, I really felt Jillian and I were kindred spirits on the same path in different forms, you know, using crime storytelling and storytelling in general to shine a light on, on, on issues that need correcting. And I thought Jillian, based on that article, was, you know, being incredibly brave to both confront her own demons as well as to confront this monster. Um, so I felt very, I felt compelled to, uh, you know, I'm pitched a million ideas all the time and 99% of them, that this, they just don't speak to me. But when I, and this wasn't pitched to me, I read the article and I just halfway through the article, I was like, okay, I got, who represents this person? What do I, I need to, I need to get into it. Um, I just felt really compelled to, to tell the story, you know. Well, after witnessing what a documentary is capable with, with Paradise Lost, do you still, or did you ever believe that film actually does hold this magical element to change the world? Well, you know, um, I do think, uh, I do think documentaries are, you know, any filmmaking, you know, even a, even a well done scripted movie that reaches you emotionally and is emotionally truthful. I do think, you know, good storytelling can affect social change. I didn't think I would see such a tangible and practical example of that via Paradise Lost when I first started my career. But when, you know, and it, remember, it took 20 years. You know, the first Paradise Lost, I thought was going to blow the doors of the jailhouse wide open. And it only, which was naive. Um, of course, the, one of the films that was greatly inspiring to me and is one of my touchstones, not because of the aesthetics of it, because it's a very different kind of filmmaking, but uh, but Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line uh, was very influential to me. And that film had a pretty immediate impact on uh, the, that case that he was profiling. I think his name is Randall Dale Evans or Randall Dale Adams. Oh, Adams probably. I'm embarrassed that I'm mixing it up. But um, uh, but the person profiled in, a thin, in Thin Blue Line was, you know, immediately um, extricated from prison. And that was very inspiring to me. Paradise Lost took three films in two decades because the first film only, only served to have the people responsible for the miscarriage of justice dig their heels in even deeper. And that's when my, that's, that's when my real wake up call to the ills of the criminal justice system, not only was there a wrongful conviction, but people will go to such lengths to protect their decision, even if it's wrong. That's the part of human nature. I didn't quite understand until we got into the making of all three films. Um, but, you know, eventually the films did have this incredible impact on the case. And that's, that's an amazing, tangible uh, uh, gift. And so I do think films can, you know, I mean, it's a, t a little bit of a tired phrase. Films can change the world, you know. Um, and I also, you know, but I do think the right film can have the right impact on people uh, at the right time.
You know, and we are right now in a profound moment of cultural awakening about institutional racism with regard to policing. Um, you know, I think part of New York State passing marijuana laws, uh, legalization laws is about how horribly unfair and how generations of people of color for minor marijuana offenses, their lives have been ruined. Um, you know, so uh, obviously with Me Too and Time's Up, there's, a, uh, there's been a cultural awakening about the violence that women face and how they're, as victims are treated like second class, often like second class citizens, like you, you, the victim have to prove your case and, you know, the accuser gets the benefit of the doubt that, so we are in a profound moment in our culture where all these things are being discussed, but it, they're not being discussed enough within the criminal justice system. Um, so I, you know, I do hope that this show, you know, really, you know, moves the needle in terms of making people aware of their biases. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I've spent a long time in this world. There's a lot of great cops and detectives and prosecutors and people who really care. So it's like, it's, it's hard to paint everyone with one broad brush. There are a lot of great people in the criminal justice system, but the system itself for lots of reasons has baked in biases, racially, uh, gender bias, um, you know, and a college student at some prestigious Northeastern University, God forbid, they were murdered, that case should be treated the same as a sex worker found in a dumpster in some other part of the country. Those cases should be treated with equal concern and they're not. And that's kind of the point of what we're doing here, you know, to, you know, and, and Jillian's mission of restoring the victim's name either by literally identifying some Jane Doe cases or solving cases where family members had been told natural causes when in fact it's clear it wasn't a natural cause and bringing the peace of mind of finally understanding. I thought that mission was so important. Um, I forgot your, your question. So I went off on a tangent. <laughs> that's my, that's my long way. That's my long way. Something. May I speak to it for a second? Of course. Um, so my answer is yes. <laughs> I, um, I, I do think that a film can change the world. I think a book can change the world. I think, um, you know, for me, when I was, when I was growing up, you know, a book changed my world. Um, a movie changed my world. Um, more than one. And I think if you change one person's world, or make one victim feel less alone or less like they have to live in shame and more like we can, we can talk about this um, and talk about these biases and talk about, um, you know, and, and talk about the emotional piece of it too. I, I, think, I think a film can change the world. Any piece of art can change the world. And, and I know that this one will. Although it is, it is, it is, that is all countered by something I'm equally concerned about these days, which is the truth itself is under assault 
documentaries are attacked for being biased and untruthful. You know, we are in an era where objective reality is being questioned. And I think that does have an impact on how effective this kind of storytelling can be in the long run. So I think we as a society need to get a handle on the fact that uh, we are so divided on really basic fundamental things that shouldn't be divisive. They're just objective reality. Uh, so that's, that's concerning, but, but anyway. That's a, that's, a, that's a topic for another day. Well, I actually kind of want to get into that a little bit. What are your feeling on staged elements within a documentary? I mean, even past stage recreations. Do you try your hardest not to provoke things within your subjects? Or do you actually subscribe to the Werner Herzog way of filmmaking? Well, look, I would never tell any filmmaker how to make a film. I think all techniques are, are okay. Uh, depending on what the intention behind it is. Um, even myself, I've taken a great journey. I mean, I was a disciple of the Maisel Brothers, direct cinema, cinema verite, aesthetic, um, you know, where you didn't even do interviews, let alone recreations or any kind of artifice. Um, I think my work has evolved over the years and I now, I now see film, you know, I see film as being, all film is highly subjective. Any, any project is, you know, filmmaking is subjective. All media is subjective in, frank, in fact, but you know, the, the angle you choose to shoot your shot, the footage you don't put in the show because there's an editing process. Um, you know, all of those things affect the objectivity of your final product, because to me, you're not going for the, the literal truth of a situation, you know, the literal truth of Paradise Lost would require you to have sat through six weeks of trial, or at the very least to watch all my dailies because six weeks of murder trial is turned into one hour of footage in the documentary. So you're trusting the filmmaker to create a hyper reality of content, which the condensation of time naturally provokes. So you're relying on the filmmaker to give you the most important points um, and to be balanced um, and to give you the emotional truthfulness of whatever situation they are covering. So since all filmmaking then is inherently subjective, part of my whole growth process has been, well, why can't you use the tools of the narrative filmmaker to you know, heighten that emotional truthfulness? Of course, as a journalist, because you are a journalist when you're a documentarian, you can't do certain things. You're still bound by certain rules of journalism. You can't make things up in a documentary. You can't put words into people's mouths that they didn't say. Um, you know, so there's a certain line you can't cross. But you know, Brothers Keeper, when it came out in 1992, was widely criticized because it had an original music score and a provocative opening title sequence, both of which are very common today. Um, and even when I explain this, younger filmmakers look at me like, what are you talking about? All documentaries are that way. But, but in 92, the original music score and the evocative opening title sequence were criticized by the then top doc makers who said, well, you can't have an original music score because that manipulates emotions and it's not journalistic and it, it kind of tells you how to feel. And like, I don't buy any of that as long as you're being emotionally truthful to your subject. Um, so, 
Um, I have started to use recreations when it's appropriate, um, you know, um, and I wouldn't tell another filmmaker how to make a film, um, but I have certain, you know, I would never tell somebody what to say or what to think or what to do in a documentary, um, you know, but I also think recreations are, I've, I've taken a, a long journey on the recreation issue. I used to, I used to, it was unthinkable to me in the nineties to use recreations and now I'm obviously very comfortable doing them because half of my shows have recreations in them. So. Well, you mentioned how much documentaries have changed. I was just wondering, Jillian, how much have you seen journalism change in this time? Would you say that? I want to speak to what um, Joe was saying, though, because uh, you know I wasn't involved in any of those the, those other processes, but I do know what it was like to be interviewed um, by Joe. And uh, and you were saying, you know, do you provoke people intentionally and in interviews? And I would say that um, you know probably like the most interesting conversations that we had were the provocative ones um, and that I definitely welcomed them and uh, and that um, you know and, and that I felt that there was an incredible uh, like emotional intelligence around the interview process you know where Joe will interview and take you just like right about to the edge and then um, and so you know, I didn't feel provoked. I felt more um, inspired, you know, to have an exciting conversation. And, uh, and then to see those other elements added to it later for me um, was really, it was, uh, I mean, I, there are words that are hard to use when you're talking about crime and you're talking about things that are so gruesome and so disturbing, um, you know, but uh, to see those more artistic elements, I really think it brought something so um, evocative emotionally um, to the story that, um, you know, that it was really amazing for me to see that completed. Back to the other point though, how much have you seen journalism change in, in your time and because Joe has talked about how much documentaries have changed, excuse me, in, in his time, would you say that you ever saw the written word becoming what it is now? Um, I mean, I, th I think when I started writing, I thought, you know, that the pinnacle was going to be, you know, I was going to write Catcher in the Rye or something, but I was 12. <laughs> um, so, uh, I have seen the publishing industry change a great deal. Um, you know, there's so much more freelance journalism than there was. And I think that that redefining journalism and what being a reporter is and what being a journalist is, um, is, is part of what is going on right now. Um, and uh, yes, I've seen it change a lot over my lifetime and I don't know what the, I, I feel like we're witnessing something that we don't understand yet. And I look forward to seeing where it's gonna lead us. To both of you, what do you feel like you both learned the most from Sam Little himself? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, uh, 
um, just how easy it is to look away. And that's what people were doing for decades and looking away, you know, created this legacy of horror for so many families. Um, the other thing, you know, I don't know. I, I you know. I don't know if I've learned anything from him, but um, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> that that you know, you you have to you have to address these issues, otherwise, somebody like him can flourish. I mean, my my relationship, of course, was more personal with him. Um, so yeah, I I would I would agree with Joe that I learned that sort of on a larger level. I also learned a lot from how I watched people react to him or interact with him um, in that people were so willing to take him at face value and also so willing to dismiss um, the violence against women. His narrative of himself is that, you know, that he's he doesn't hate women, he loves women. He's not violent with women, he doesn't hurt women. He doesn't rape women. He loves women, he just kills women. And um, everyone found it so surprising that he just seemed like this very likable grandpa. Um, and we're really like, yeah, that's right. He loves, he loves women. And it really made me say, wow. He, he's killing them. Like that, that's a sexual assault. That's violence against women. He's violent. He ended their lives. Um, and yes, he does seem like a very nice grandpa. Um, but here's the evidence. Um, so I think I learned how easy it is for people to, to dismiss those victims um, in the crime scene photos on the table in front of them um, because it's a nice grandpa who's talking about how he killed that woman. Um, and, uh, and what I learned from Sam himself, uh, that's, a, that's a book that I'm editing. <laughs> that I'm doing the final edits of right now. And, um, but truthfully, I, I think it's gonna take a long time to settle with me. It's not, uh, it's not a job you walk into, you know, and work nine to five. It's, it's something that lives in you when you're sleeping, when you're awake all the time. And I imagine it will for a long while. Well, finally, what can we expect from both of you coming up? Joe, you have a project that I'm very excited for the Clive Barker documentary you can give us anything on that or anything else that you're working on other than the crime scene stuff. And Jillian, what can we expect from you writing coming up? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard. You know, I like to kind of keep things under wraps until they're done because I don't like to jinx them. But, um, you know, I do have a couple of uh, excellent projects coming down, coming down the pike. Um, and uh, we do have another season of Crime Scene that's been announced, so I can talk about that. You know, Crime Scene is on Netflix and hopefully more work with stars and uh, maybe another scripted movie, you know, if they let me after the Zac Efron film. 
<laughs> it was a good film. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, I, I loved it. You know, it, it was very divisive, like many things in our society. You know, uh, there was no one in the middle. People either totally loved it and got what I was doing by telling his story through a victim's perspective. That's the irony is people were criticized it for, you know, sometimes you can't win is the bottom line. You know, when the trailer came out before it went to Sundance, uh, I didn't like the trailer. The company that the financing company that was trying to sell the movie at Sundance made the trailer. And, it, you know, it was it was a, you know, any little any little bit of violence that could be gleaned from the from the movie was put into this trailer to make it seem like a much more traditional serial killer movie. And when the trailer came out, all the, you know, there was all this criticism, look at all the violence. Why are we having violence in a, you know, why do we need more violence, you know, and telling a serial killer story. Then the movie comes out uh, and actually people realize that, no, it's just the opposite. We save all the violence until the end of the movie to make the point that his live-in girlfriend played by Lily Collins had, did not understand or emotionally accept that, this was a serial killer that she was living with and trusting and loving until the very end of the movie. And now the movie is criticized. Well, there's not enough violence in it. You know how you're responsible to not have more violence in the movie. So to a certain group of people, you can't win um, no matter what you do. And that movie, there was no middle ground. Either people either loved it or hated it. And that's generally how I'm, you know, finding my work these days. It's, it's, it's right. <laughs> right down the middle people either love it and get it or hate it and think it's irresponsible which you know at this point i just kind of I, I can't listen to the criticism but um you know it's funny because um with the advent of streaming and the popularity of documentary i mean i'm getting audiences you know that i could never dream of i mean I, again i can't tell you how many people saw a crime scene or bundy on Netflix, but the number was humongous, like it, like an incomprehensible number to me, you know. Uh, and in the old days of my career, I used to get glowing reviews and very small audiences. Now I get huge audiences and very mixed reviews. So, and I don't think the nature of my work has changed. So it's interesting how, so is it my work that's changing? Is it people's perceptions? Who knows? <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm right there with you, Joe. I mean, I <laughs> I don't ever see it changing for me. People always have been split right down the middle. You know, my first book was about being in a harem. So um, <laughs> I'm sort of divisive by nature. Um, so I'm used to it. Um, so right now uh, what's happening is I'm putting the finishing touches on this book called Behold the Monster, which is the book that I'm writing throughout the movie, of course, you know, what happened was uh, two enormous things sort of upended the writing of the book at the end, which were that I solved this murder in Long Beach and um, and Sam died in prison and, um, and, and named me as next of kin. And I had a lot of legal things to deal with around that. And um, so, uh, so I sort of had to rewrite the whole ending, um, and and it's the right ending, and it's the right story. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. I also just um, optioned a script 
up to Emmy Rosum from Shameless. I, sh I probably shouldn't jinx that either, but um, I would just be thrilled to death um, to see that show made. And it is, it is very, very violent. <laughs> I will be divisive, I'm sure. Well, Jillian, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It, it, I, I hope that we get, get you back on here for any of your future projects. Cool. Well, much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for listening. That upcoming five-episode series confronting a serial killer on the exploits and murders of Sam Little is available now. While well, episode one is available now, depends when you listen to this. It started April 18th, 2021, down in the States on Stars and up here in Canada on Crave. Again, I'd like to thank Joe Berlinger, Jillian Lauren. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to both of them. Make sure you check out this series. It's available now. And this concludes our broadcast day.